0: The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org.
1: Today's scripture reading comes from Mark thirteen thirty-two through thirty-seven. Now, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch. Be alert. For you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey, who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight, or at the crowing of the rooster, or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping." And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. This is the word of God.
0: I grew up with three brothers and I have three sons, so sports has been a, a big part of my life. But with sports often comes bragging. If you play sports and you're an athlete, you, you like to talk about what you've done. Like that time in fourth grade in the Little League Championship where you hit the home run that, that won the the championship trophy, or, or you like to talk about things that you, you're sure you could still do, like you're sure you could get a hit off that major league pitcher, because when you were in fourth grade, you, you hit a, cha- a home run in a championship game. But the great thing about sports is that there are opportunities to prove it, right? We, we would call this backing it up. So we'd say something like, can they back it up? A guy says, uh, he, yeah, I can dunk the basketball. He'd be like, okay, prove it, back it up. Let's go out to court and let, show me you can dunk it. Because nothing's worse in sports than a person who claims to do great things but fails to back it up. It was once said about a boxer that his lips wrote a check, his fists couldn't cash. Right? He talked a lot, but he couldn't back it up. It's true for more than sports. If you go into a doctor's office, you see their wall, their ego wall, right, with all of the certificates and, and diplomas hanging there. And it, it's a way of them saying, look at what I can do. Right? These, these decorations on the wall are, are sort of making claims. Can he back it up? You, you certainly hope so. I was in a restaurant not too long ago where when you walk in, they have like these awards they've won on the wall as well as like framed articles and everything. It's really their way of saying, like, look, we're pretty good. I don't care what they say. I want to know how the food tastes. Can they back it up? Like This is how we learn to trust someone. It's not about the claims they make. It's about the claims they can back up. Like, it's great to have a surgeon who says he can handle the problem. I want a surgeon who successfully completed the operation many, many times before me. Like, that's the guy I trust. Let's think for a moment about what we've seen through the Gospel of Mark, right? We've, We've seen all of these claims that Jesus has made. And so the question is, can he back them up? Are they just claims or can he back them up? So let's, Let's just think for a second, what, what are some of the claims he's made throughout this gospel? In chapter 1, he claimed to be the king, announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, and then he calls this group of men to leave their, leave their jobs and, and devote their lives to following him, because he's the king. Chapter 2, he claims to have authority and power to forgive sins, that he is the great physician sent by God to heal all of those who are spiritually sick. Also in chapter 2, he claims to be the Lord over the Sabbath, And by implication, the one who made all things, including the Sabbath day. Chapter 3, he claims to have defeated Satan. And every time he casts out a demon is further proof that he has has won a victory. Chapter 8, he claims that the only way to save your life is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Chapter 9, he claims that he would be soon rejected by the religious leaders, executed, then rise from the dead. Chapter 11, he claims the authority to judge Israel and the entire religious system centered in the temple. And then in chapter 12, he claims that God himself would come to execute judgment on those who rejected him, particularly the religious leaders who had him killed. That's a pretty serious list of claims, right? But I think the biggest claim of all is the one that that sort of makes sense of all these other claims is that Jesus repeatedly claims to be the Son of Man who was prophesied about by the prophet Daniel. So eight times in these first 12, verse, or 12 chapters of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has given himself or claimed for himself this title, the Son of Man. So here's what I want, you to do. I want you to turn your Bibles back to Daniel chapter 7. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's in the Old Testament, about halfway through it, but Daniel chapter 7. I want you to see where this title comes from, because it's important for us to understand this chapter this morning, Mark 13. We've got to understand the significance of Jesus claiming and identifying himself with this particular title. So here's how Daniel goes. In the first six chapters of Daniel, you have God demonstrating his sovereignty over all kings and nations. So he brings the nation of Babylon in to conquer the nation of Israel to show he's sovereign over Israel. But then he brings in the Medes and Persians to conquer Babylon to show he's also sovereign over them. And then about halfway through the book, they begin to have all these visions that Daniel the prophet sees. And these visions are demonstrating that God is not only sovereign over the nations right then, but he's sovereign over all coming kings and nations. Right in the middle of these visions is a vision of God himself enthroned in all of his majesty and glory. He's in a courtroom, his heavenly courtroom, where he is judging all of the kings and nations. And so the the God's sovereign authority and control and his judgment of the nations is the context in which we find these next verses. Look at Daniel 7 verse 13. Daniel writes, I continued watching in the night visions. And suddenly one like a son of man, so there's where the title comes from, Was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So the Son of Man, whoever this individual is, he looks human. That's the point of being a Son of Man. So so you have God enthroned in all of his glory and wisdom. like We can't even picture that. And you have this human being, it appears, who, who comes on the clouds before him. And it's this wonderful picture of a human, but also someone divine. Who else comes on clouds? He's able to walk into God's presence where it says he's given a kingdom that encompasses all things and cannot be destroyed. His kingdom extends beyond the borders of Israel to include people from all nations. So every time Jesus in the Gospels calls himself the son of man, he's claiming to be this king, the king over all things. So can Jesus back up a claim this big? Well, to many people, the answer appears to be no, because in just a day or two after these events in Mark 13, Jesus is going to be arrested, and he's going to be hauled before court, and he's going to be condemned to die, and he's going to be hung on a tree where he dies and he's put in the grave, and they're going to watch, and for decades, it appears that nothing happens because of it. Jesus had said, remember the vineyard owner, the parable of the vineyard owner we looked at just a couple weeks ago? that Jesus, it was about Israel, that God had given the vineyard of Israel, he'd cared for it, and the leaders had not only killed all the people God had sent, all the prophets, but they killed his own son, and Jesus asked this question, like, what's going to happen? And the answer was, he's going to come judge them, and people are going to say, like, but that didn't happen. Jesus claimed all this. What's the deal? How come he's dead, and they seem to be fine? Now, we know, of course, the ultimate vindication of Jesus is the resurrection. God raises him from the dead that he is in, as proof that he's the perfect son whose sacrifice in the place of sinners has been accepted. But here in chapter 13 Jesus backs up his claim with a detailed prophecy of judgment, a prophecy that will be fulfilled within the lifetime of those who rejected him, a prophecy that also looks ahead to the final judgment. Now, let me just sort of caution you up front as we look at this chapter fairly quickly this morning, It's easy to get lost in all the details and miss the point. Okay, so let me give you the point right now so you don't miss it. Mark is continuing to demonstrate the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of Man, Jesus is the promised King, so that we as his disciples, we will trust him and we will follow him even when life gets confusing and uncertain. That's the point. So let's not miss that in all the details. The bulk of this chapter, though, is a prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction. A prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction. Now think about this. Jesus gives this prophecy 40 years before it comes to pass. Mark writes it down, and his gospel starts getting reproduced about 10 years before it happens. right? And so all of this is done prior to the events that are recorded there. And it's fulfillment of Jesus' identity and authority. Now what prompts Jesus making this prophecy is a comment by one of his disciples. Look at verse 1. Mark 13, as he, Jesus, was going out of the temples, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what an impressive building. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, all will be thrown down. Now, they're particularly referring to the temple that's called Herod's Temple. So, you have the original temple built by Solomon 700 or so years earlier seven, eight, nine hundred years earlier, and then you have this temple rebuilt by King Herod, an amazing structure. I had the privilege a few years ago of of taking this underground tour where you got to see some of the walls of the temple mount that that are still there from the time of Herod. The temple's gone, as Jesus predicted, but the the mount they built to to sort of place the temple on top and they're reinforced is still there. And some of these stones are the size of large vans. They're they're mind-blowing how big they are. They're huge, but in spite of its impressive size, how wonderful it appeared this temple that that he's referring to here was completely leveled in AD 70 when the Romans entered under the leadership of Titus. And so what you have happening in these first two verses is you have Jesus leaving the temple for the last time. And and this this is reminiscent of something that happened earlier to the previous temple. So the previous temple built by Solomon, this glorious temple, because of the rebellion of God's people, judgment judgment was predicted and promised on that. And we're told in Ezekiel that the Spirit of the Lord left the temple. And after he left the temple, that's when judgment came. And you have a very similar thing happening here where Jesus walks out of the temple for the last time He walks across to the Mount of Olives and there he sits with his disciples overlooking this temple. God's judgment is coming on it. Now the disciples are curious, guys. We know this. So they say, we want more details. What's going to happen? Their question is key to understanding Jesus' answer. Look at verse 4. They say, tell us. When will these things happen? When will this temple be destroyed? What's going to happen before it does? What are the signs this all to be accomplished? And these are the main questions Jesus is answering in chapter 13. But his answer demonstrates that what happens to Jerusalem is part of a larger story of his dominion over all nations and the inbreaking of his kingdom. Now, Jesus begins his answer primarily warning his disciples about the difficulty and persecution that they're going to experience between that moment and the destruction of the temple. Life's going to be hard, is what he says. Like, it's going to be difficult and dangerous following me. He says to his disciples, you're going to be hauled in front of rulers. But this is part of my larger plan, to send the gospel to the nations. And so he tells them repeatedly, we'll see in a moment, don't be afraid. Don't quit. And don't be deceived by all the people who spring up and say, I'm coming in your, Jesus' name. He's like, they're not coming in my name. Now, the main purpose of these instructions is to prepare his disciples for the difficulty of what's about to come. So just listen for that as we read. Look at verse 5. Jesus told them, watch out, that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will deceive many. When he hears of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. But say whatever is given you at that time, for it isn't you speaking by the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." So Jesus right here predicts exactly what's going to happen between his resurrection and the destruction of the temple. In fact, I was thinking about this. If you were to take the book of Acts and sort of pull it out of the Bible and you were to publish it as a separate book, you could take these verses right here and put them on the back of it as the summary. Like, this is what happens in the book of Acts, right? There's all lots of conflict, lots of persecution. There are wars and natural disasters. Christians are arrested and hauled in front of governors and kings, where, what do they do? They fiercely proclaim the gospel, and it goes out to all nations. The Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised here, empowers them to be bold witnesses, and He uses their testimony to change lives. But notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 8. And this is key to understanding a biblical prophecy. Jesus says these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, moms, you remember birth pain? Sorry to bring this up. You're having a nice day. Remember, birth pains, they're not quick. They're not easy. They don't disappear immediately. There's this sort of extended period of time before the baby comes. And that's what Jesus is saying here. There's this time of difficulty. The events he describes in these coming verses are not the end of everything. It's part of the birth of his new world and the reshaping of the the world he's given us. And it isn't complete until that final day when Jesus brings forth a brand new creation. And it's important for us to understand that biblical prophecy rarely has one single fulfillment. Like God fulfills his promises, but then what we see is this, the fulfillment often looks forward to the next fulfillment and the next fulfillment until the final fulfillment when all things are made new. So all of the events that Jesus is speaking about in connection with the destruction of Jerusalem, they're part of this time period the Bible calls the last days. But they're not the sum total of the last days. They're the... Jesus says right they're the beginning of the birth pains. And those birth pains continue until the day when the new creation comes fully and completely. Now I found a a, a sort of a popular illustration of biblical prophecy helpful when you look at passages like this. So if you've ever traveled either west to the Rockies or maybe traveled really far east to the Alps, when when you look at a mountain range from a distance, it sort of looks all flat. Right? It looks like the mountains are sort of lined up horizontally, side by side. Like From a distance, you can't really see the gaps between them. It isn't often until you get to that, that first mountain that you realize, like, oh, they're, they're not in a line. You have a mountain here. That next one is, is sort of a long way further. Maybe there's one further past that. So from a distance, they sort of look flat, but as you get closer, you start to see these gaps between them. And part of the reason that they appear so close is because they they share a lot of the same characteristics. They, 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 the mountains look alike, right, right? They're all tall, they're all peaked, they're all snow-covered. You get up closer, you start to see some of the variation in them. Oh, biblical prophecy is a lot like a mountain range. From a distance, all of these events appear to happen sort of right next to each other. But as you get closer, you start to see there's these, these gaps between that, that aren't really visible from the past. And not only that, those those events, they they look very similar. And and this is is, is what happens in biblical prophecy is, is past events sort of prefigure current events which look forward to other events in the future. So as he describes, Jesus describes the destruction of Jerusalem, what he does is he uses language from past prophecies. And then he and the New Testament writers pick up on this language and they use it again for future events, particularly his second coming. So the nature of biblical prophecy one of the things it should do in us is it should breed great humility as we look at events like this. So if there's anyone you know who claims to have figured it all out they're like I've answered every question I have I understand every single detail and I can I can iron out every problem here's what I would tell you either be very careful when you listen to them or just don't listen to them. Right for, for do you realize for 2,000 years Christians have wrestled with this chapter and chapters like this? Like Christians didn't say like, oh, okay, we got it. Like we've wrestled with the difficulty and that's because of the nature of prophecy. Think, think about what we've talked about. This is full of symbols and illusions. There's these timetables which, which sort of blend together. There's these details which are repeated over and over And that should cause us, that when we approach chapters like this, to to approach them with a level of humility, recognizing the big picture of what God is doing, what he's promising, but understanding that that some of the details are difficult to understand, and, and people end up in different places when they're interpreting them. Well, in the next set of verses, Jesus explains how awful the destruction of Jerusalem will be. And what he does is he draws language from Israel's history, particularly the book of Daniel to warn them about what's coming. Look at verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation, now that's a phrase directly from the book of Daniel, standing where it should not be, then he says, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in or get anything out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved, but he cuts those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. Now in verse 14, that phrase, abomination of desolation, is first used by the prophet Daniel to speak about a king named Antiochus Epiphanes. This was the king who who conquered Israel in the second century BC. And when he conquered Israel, he defiled the temple in these just horrific ways. It says that he, we we learn from history that he set up an altar, a pagan altar right in the middle of the Holy of Holies, and there he sacrificed pigs as a way to defile and make it unclean. And Jesus here is warning the disciples, something similar is coming, and something similar does come. AD 70, Titus comes in, they destroy the temple, and they set up pagan worship where the temple used to stand. Now this all happened. The destruction and ransacking of Jerusalem happened after a multi-year siege where more than a million Jews died. There were more Jewish casualties during that time than any previous time in Israel's history. But, and it was only the grace of God in bringing it to a conclusion that, that, that really spared anyone from Israel. But two things of great significance happened during this time of invasion. First, there were all these guys who, who sort of put the spotlight on themselves and said, I'll, I'll be the one who saves you, just trust me. All of these messiahs appeared that they were, if you just listen to us, we'll defeat Rome. And all of them failed. And then second, Christians listening to Jesus said here, scatter from Jerusalem and the gospel goes to the nations. But it would be hard for us to overestimate the bloodshed, destruction, and fear that was felt by Israel during this time described here. But we need to understand that, like past judgments, like all past judgments, all of them look ahead to a future judgment. There's a day coming when God returns to judge all those who reject his son. So, in the destruction here of Jerusalem, what we're seeing is we see the partial fulfillment of Jesus' parable, of the vineyards. Because he asked that question. Do you Remember he asked this question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will God do to those who reject his son? And the answer Jesus gave in Mark 12, verse 9, it says he will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. And that's what happened. This is exactly what happened in 80, 70, and this is a warning to anyone who continues to reject. Jesus, judgment is coming. And so the first 23 verses here are just, they're a prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction. Now in the next few verses, what we discover is the proof of Jesus' dominion. So verses 24 through 27 are sort of the key part, I believe, of this chapter. And Jesus uses highly symbolic language. And whenever you have symbolic language, what you have are lots of interpretations. Okay, But the way to interpret this is to understand that Jesus is simply quoting from the Old Testament. And so when we look at the original context of his quotes, they help us better interpret what he's saying. So verses 25 and 26, sorry, 24 and 25 come from Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13 is a prophecy about God's judgment on Babylon. So Babylon has rebelled against God. Babylon has Babylon has sort of been this sort of picture of wickedness and rebellion, and there's this promise made of judgment. And here's what it says. Well, what it says is what Jesus quotes here. Look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. So what Isaiah is describing about Babylon and what Jesus is describing about Jerusalem is total destruction. So do you ever hear the phrase in history class, at the, at the height of the British Empire, it said, the sun never set on the British Empire And the idea is like they had sort of like, property in all the time zones, and no matter what, the sun was always going over. sort of the opposite's being said here. It's saying there's a day when the sun will set finally on Babylon. Like the sun will be no more. They'll no longer be alive for a sunset. They'll never be long alive for a sunrise. like this nation is ending. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The point Jesus is making here is that the same type of judgment that God brought on Babylon is coming on Israel. That they are ending. Now here's the important thing for us to consider. Who has the right to call down judgment on nations? I mean, Zach Engel could attempt it. He might. I mean, do we take it seriously? Probably not. Like, we we like he doesn't have any more authority to call judgment on a nation than I do. Like, who has the right to say judgment is coming and then it comes? See, Jesus here is not simply reporting what will happen. Jesus is demonstrating that he has the authority and the power to judge. Israel for its rejection of him as Messiah. He has determined that the same judgment God brought upon Babylon for its defiance, he is bringing on Israel for it defying him. Like this is the point he's making, particularly with his next statement, which is a direct quote from Daniel's prophecy about the Son of Man. We, we read that a few minutes ago. The fact that Jesus has the authority to judge a nation for rebellion, to bring its utter destruction, is proof that he is the Son of Man who has received an everlasting dominion over all creations. So the question is, who has the right to call on authority? The one that God has given every single nation to. And so this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's saying, when you look out and you see the utter destruction of Jerusalem, exactly as I told you it would happen, Then you will know, then you will perceive that I am the Son of Man who came on the clouds to God Himself and was given authority and dominion over all nations. Look at verse 26. Then, when all this happens, when the sun sets permanently on the nation of Israel through destruction, then you will see, you will perceive the Son of Man coming on the clouds. You will know for certain that is me. So Jesus is not only vindicated at the resurrection, but he's also vindicated in the destruction of Jerusalem. The fulfillment of of his promise of destruction is a sign that he is not only the owner's son from the parable of the vineyard, but he is the son of man from Daniel 7. Now the same language Jesus will use later in the next chapter, the New Testament writers will use to talk about his final coming, coming in judgment on the clouds. So the vision of Daniel 7 is is confirmed by the destruction of Jerusalem, but it is consummated ultimately when Jesus comes again. Now the following verse describes how Jesus, the one with worldwide dominion, is sending his messengers across the whole expanse of his realm to gather those who belong to him. He says in verse 27... He will send out the angels, that's simply the word messengers. He will send out his messengers and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is what Jesus is doing right now through the preaching of the gospel. He is gathering those who will reign with him in his everlasting kingdom. But just like the promise of judgment and the promise of his return, this is not completed until Jesus' final return at the last day. So if we, if we consider what's happened so far, Jesus has sort of he's given us detailed prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem, because they've asked, like, when is this temple going to be destroyed? And he says, well, you'll see it in all of this. And then he goes a little further. He says, and this is a sign that I am the son of man who is in control of all things, and I'm the one who ultimately reign over all nations. But then he gives them a couple illustrations, and this is to help them as they wait. I like to think of it this way, that here they are, and they're living between these two mountains. Right? There's the mountain of the destruction of Jerusalem, which they're about to experience. And there's this mountain out there when Jesus returns. And they're living in this valley. And they don't know how long it is. It's a tough valley. It's filled with challenges. And Jesus is just, he's saying, here's, here's what you need to do while you wait. So this chapter ends with perspective for Jesus' disciples. Two illustrations. The first illustration Jesus gives is about a fig tree. Okay. We should remember a fig tree, right? Just a couple weeks ago, we looked at what happened with the fig tree. Jesus, after he entered Jerusalem, it says he saw a fig tree and he went up to get fruit and there was no fruit on it, and he cursed it. And the next day, like they walked back in and the disciples were like, whoa, look at that fig tree, it's, it's withered. And what happened between the cursing of it and the withering of it is that Jesus went in the temple and he overturned the tables and he drove out the money changers and we understand this, this picture. Israel was the fig tree who, who, when they were supposed to bear good fruit, did not bear good fruit. And Jesus was judging Israel for its sin and rebellion. And so now he uses this illustration of the fig tree to assure his disciples, like, this is happening. What happened to that fig tree, this is happening to Israel. Look at verse 28. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus says the judge is standing at the door. He's about to come before this generation of disciples passes away. The identity and authority of Jesus as the Son of Man will be made clear through the utter destruction of Jerusalem, specifically the temple. And Jesus says, like, and this is happening like, there is no way this will not come to pass. This leads Jesus into a second illustration. But between them, he, he makes a statement that has confused and alarmed many Christians. Look at verse 32. It says, Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. This has often been understood as, as Jesus not being aware of his second coming. But I believe Jesus here is specifically speaking about the hour of destruction on Jerusalem. In other words, he says, listen, it's close, but here I I, I have not yet received the the exact hour from the Father. So in his incarnation, Jesus voluntarily constrained his omniscience. This is what it means in Luke 2 when it says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. When he took on humanity, he also voluntarily constrained some of his omniscience so that he could grow in wisdom. And he says here, yet the, the Father has not yet revealed the time, the exact moment of destruction. I, I know it's near. I'm saying it's coming. It's, this is not saying that Jesus right now, enthroned in heaven, doesn't know when he's coming back. That it's a secret from him. What he says is that like judgment on Israel is coming soon. But the second illustration encourages the disciples to faithfulness. As they wait not only for the judgment on Jerusalem, but also the final day when all that belong to Jesus from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered to him and he has established his kingdom here on earth. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening. Or midnight, or at the crowing of the rooster, or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone: be alert. Now, now large homes in Jesus—they didn't have locks as we think about them. What they had was a doorkeeper, and whose main job was right. Well, it's somewhat self-explanatory to keep the door. Right, you keep the wrong people from coming in. You make right. So, in this case, who are the wrong people? He's talked about false prophets, false messiahs. Be alert for them. But instead, what you're waiting for is the the owner to return, and you want to be alert. And this is our responsibility. Here we are. We're living in the space between these two judgments, a judgment on the faithless in Israel and a coming judgment on the faithless in all the nations. It says, at the moment, the Son of Man, the Master of the Earth, at any moment, he will return. Will we be ready? Did you notice how many times it says, be alert? Spiritually, do we keep hitting the snooze button? Do we just go week after week not really thinking that Christ is coming back? That judgment is coming upon those who don't know him? That he's given us a job to do? And it's our responsibility to to fulfill the job he's given? Our master's given us a job? Be alert. Stay on top of things. Be aware. Don't fall asleep. Be alert. What are we alert for? We're alert for false teaching. I mean, that's been a common theme in this, that after Jesus departs that there's going to be those who constantly come and say, "Oh, I've got a message from Jesus. Be alert for them. Be alert you don't give in to false teaching. Be alert that there'll be some who hate you and some who persecute you and some who, who, who try to harm you. Be alert for that. Be alert that there'll be some who try to persuade you to walk away from Jesus by false teaching. Be alert. Don't fall asleep. We don't want to be sleeping when Jesus returns, do we, brothers and sisters? We want to be calling the nations to come and worship him. We want to call people from all the four corners of the earth. Now listen, this is a hard chapter. And there are a lot of possible interpretations of this. I've known this chapter has been coming for a long time. So you know what I did? I read a lot of books. You know what I found out? None of them agree with each other. A lot of time spent. And maybe we've walked through this stuff and you've said like, I, I, I think I disagree with you. I would just say that's okay. That doesn't hurt my feelings. I'm fine with that. A lot of really, really smart, godly people disagree with me. But however you interpret the exact details of this passage, I want to end this morning with a pastoral encouragement to you. Prophecy in the Bible is not given to us as Christians so that we have something to argue about. It's not here to satisfy our intellectual curiosity. It's not a reason for division. It's given for one overarching purpose. Listen, to help us endure until the end. That's what it's given for. We must not forget that. We must not get so caught up in our own opinions, our own interpretations, that we forget what Jesus, the master, the son of man, is calling us, his followers, to do. He's calling us to follow him when things are tough and life doesn't make any sense. Because that's how he's going to feel to a lot of his followers. He's reminding us that what he says always comes to pass. Even if we don't see it at this moment, it will come to pass. It cannot fail. He's assuring us that he holds all things in his hands and that no one can stop him from establishing his kingdom on earth. It will happen. And he's helping us hold on when we want to give up. If biblical pop- prophecy is a rope, then people use it too often to string up those who disagree with them when they should tie it to a life preserver and toss it to those who are drowning. Like Jesus said these things to encourage and strengthen his disciples to trust him and endure difficult things until the end when he returns and makes all things new. So let's always remember this was written. Not to embolden us to fight for our opinions, but to encourage us to hold on to our hope. Here's our hope. The Son of Man will gather his people. Here's our hope. The Son of Man will establish his kingdom, and it won't fail. We pray with me? Father, help us as we wrestle with difficult things, challenging things, challenging for a few reasons. One is that that challenging to interpret. We want to be faithful interpreters of your word, and so help us to do that well. But challenging, too, because it speaks of judgment on those who don't know you, on those who reject you as sovereign over all, and those who reject Jesus as the Son of Man king over all things. And so I pray that you'll help us as we think about these things to be motivated to take the gospel to the nations. Like we heard Sarah earlier, to be bold enough to enter into conversations with those who are lost would help us, encourage us with your word that you are returning. Help us to be faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.